It's planting season, and it's not too late to make sure your crops grow up fed and happy. Regardless of your spring crop, Fed and Happy offers a variety of worm-casting solutions in liquid and solid form to supercharge your soil, your yields, and your profitability. For fast, vibrant germination and seedling growth, mix your seed with Fed and Happy's screened granular castings pre-drilling. The Fed and Happy liquid seed treat and extracts offer the ideal mix of soluble solids loaded with living beneficial biology, mycorrhizal fungi, humates, and more. The Fed and Happy small spreadable castings are ideal for fast, easy soil incorporation. The large offer long-term stability and soil growth. But you don't have to figure this out on your own. Just call 833-GO-WORMS to speak with our farm team experts for a fast turnaround on a custom solution for your needs. Fare better against pests, disease, drought, and other potential hazards this season with Fed and Happy Worm Castings. Visit FedandHappy.com for a healthy harvest and any lawn, garden, and tree care needs. Available for pickup and on-farm delivery. That's F-E-D-N-Happy.com. Or call 833-GO-WORMS. Happy planting. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's high time. We had a high time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. We're keeping things nerdy this week, diving into the world of cannabis science with a chemist who's participated in the evolution of the cannabis industry. Joshua Werzer is co-founder and president of SC Labs, based in Santa Cruz, California. SC Labs is one of the first analytical laboratories that specializes in testing cannabis and cannabis products. As a chemist, Josh has spent 11 years focusing on the technical side of the industry. His hopes to continue the advancement of best practices and quality control standards in the cannabis industry keeps him pretty busy. Josh serves as a member of the U.S. Pharmacopeia Cannabis Expert Panel. He's on the AOAC CASP Advisory Board and a member of other trade groups focusing on industry and laboratory standards. Side note, I had to look up the AOAC CASP thing. I'd never heard of it. So I figure you might not have heard of it either. AOAC stands for the Association of Analytical Collaboration. It brings together government, industry, and academia to establish standard methods of analysis that ensure the safety and integrity of foods and other products that impact public health around the world. AOAC's Cannabis Analytical Science Program, CASP, is a forum where the science of hemp and cannabis analysis can be discussed and cannabis standards and methods developed. CASP was formed to provide the consensus-driven standards and methods to promote accuracy in label potency claims and to address public safety issues such as pathogens and residual solvents. With the passage of the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, 
aka the Farm Bill, the hemp-derived CBD market is projected to reach $22 billion by 2022. CASP is developing analytical tools for accurate measurement of CBD in hemp plants and derived ingredients in dietary supplements and in pet foods. Josh and I get in the weeds on the value and classification of terpenes, the truth of cannabinoid percentages, pesticides in rolling papers, heavy metals, lab testing, and wrinkles in the difference between hemp and cannabis. So fire up your favorite and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar kind. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just take one. Smoke. Josh, thanks for joining me for an episode of the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. I have had my own personal issues with testing labs recently, and and I got an email from your publicist. She had put some bullet points together of each of you, and I was like, um, Josh, that's who I want to talk to. The heavy metals testing piece that you're working on and um, your role with the medical cannabis expert panel with U.S. Pharmacopeia. I just feel like I need your wisdom right now, Josh. <laughs> Well, I don't know about wisdom, but I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what I, what I do know. All right. So as a chemist who's been working in the cannabis space for 10 or 11 years, how have you seen the industry evolve when it comes to the cannabis testing standards? Well, I mean, it, there were no standards for the longest time. So when we started doing this, um, I was the laboratory director for, for a lab called Steep Hill, um, which is still around in, 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 in the East Bay here. I'm familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. So I was the one of the first laboratory directors right after they had opened. Um, and I, I started there. I, I was, I'm a chemist. And so I was just kind of looking for a, a new job. Not really seriously. I, I wasn't happy. My background is more in kind of research and development. Um, I was working for Samsung doing electronic materials, so developing the materials that like computer chips and, and displays are made out of. And uh, um, came across the job posting for Steep Hill. Long story short, um, went in for an interview just to kind of see what they were doing because it, you know, it was just a regular job posting. And at the very end of the posting, it said, must be comfortable working with medical marijuana. And this was 11 years ago. So there was you know, there was no labs or anything like that, that, that I knew of. And I, I, I basically sent in my resume just, just to go see what was going on. And, um, you know, before I knew it, they'd offer me the job and, and I accepted it thinking, okay, I'll do this until I find a real job. And, you know, obviously never <laughs> put it on my resume and, 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 you know, 11 years later, this is, this is, I guess it's my career. real job. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so back then, I mean, it was, it was brand new. And so we, we, we'd set up to be able to, to test for cannabinoid levels. And it was just three at the time it was THC, CBD and CBM. And we're using a GC, so we couldn't differentiate between the acidic cannabinoids and the neutral cannabinoids. And uh, um, and then we were also um, sending samples off to get microbiological testing. So um, those were the only two tests we offered, basically the entire time I was at Steep Hill. And so worked there for about a year and then left to to, to start SC Labs in, in, in Santa Cruz. And, and we've been doing that ever since. So, but how it's changed is, is we live in a, a regulated cannabis world. So, um, you know, all of the testing we do for cannabis, we weren't even doing back then, but um, to actually have it, you know, have have requirements for quality and safety um, is, is, is a huge change. But I guess early on, what the, the big change I've seen kind of over this entire, you know, 11 years I've been doing this is, you know, when we first started doing this and, and no one really knew it was in their cannabis, Cannabis was sort of just judged on its qualitative merits, right? So did it, did it taste good? Did, it, did I like the feeling I got when I when I consumed it, um, smoked it or, or ate it or whatever? And, and, and that was it. And, and when we came along and we started doing cannabinoid testing, well, it just kind of became really quickly about who had the highest 
THC concentrations mm-hmm. in their flowers and not about you know, kind of the overall quality of the flowers as much. And so I think if testing industry has actually done a disservice to cannabis, it's in that regard where this, you know, thing about you know, more THC is always better, um, kind of, kind of stuck and, and, and I get why it happened, but it, for me, it's not even close to the whole picture that, that cannabis can tell us. And, and, and so, um, that, that's a change I've seen where now all of a sudden, a lot of these, these cannabis strains that were very common in the market, like your Bubba Kush's or a lot of your purples that are great tasting strains, people seem to love before we knew what the THC results were, um, now aren't, aren't available because they test, you know, 14, 15% THC and no one wants to pay as much for, for a strain that's only 14 or 15% THC as they do for one that's, you know, 25% THC. Yeah. I had a Lyft driver when I was in Oregon a couple of years ago and was just saying like, hey, you know, I overheard what you were saying and I just I get really anxious when I smoke now and I think something's wrong with me or I I shouldn't do it anymore. And I asked, what kind of cannabis are you getting? What's the THC percentage? And he said, well, I want the most bang for my buck. I get the highest one. And I was like, well, then that's why you're getting all weird and paranoid. And the truth is you exhale most of that vapor anyways. So, I mean, if you're going to smoke a 15% strain and you want to get the bang for your buck, well, then hold it in a little bit longer and give more time for it to absorb, absorb into your lungs. Um, and so so that's why also I'm really excited. The focus of most of my interest these days is, is in terpenes. Mm-hmm. Um, because terpenes for me are, are really the quantitative quality indicators that that you know the lab can give insight into but but really do establish quality more so than just kind of absolute THC you know when i'm purchasing wine i'm not going you know going through the bottles looking for for alcohol content right um you know i'm i'm looking for the flavors and subtle kind of different effects maybe from from one strain to the next with cannabis that's what the terpenes are telling you so um you know kind of the indica sativa effect can most likely be be traced directly to terpene content mm-hmm. and so you know for me i think um, now that that you know more labs are doing terpene testing, you know all of them in California because it's a required test for in, in some some instances. I think it 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 behoove us as an industry to really encourage um, you know cannabis producers to to really look at terpenes when when they're making their you know their breeding decisions and and and, and for for retailers to really incorporate terpenes into kind of their pitch to, to customers and and in bud tenders when they're when they're selling um, cannabis to people. Um, if they have a, a, a better knowledge of terpenes, um, can really give you know a customer a, a much better recommendation based on you know terpene results. Now, I know a lot of producers who choose to have that terpene profile tested so that they can see how the strains that they produce that year are, how they're expressing, and maybe what they want to keep in the lineup for the next year or not. But I don't know very many dispensaries who then take that data and share it on with the consumers. That terpene testing, is that an option, but it's not a requirement? Correct, correct. Okay. So it, it is required in, in certain circumstances. For instance, if you label your package with, terp- with, with terpene content, then you have to have the test to back it up. The regulations are, are sort of vague, but but that's that's basically the ruling is, is that um, if I say this is, you know, one percent mercine, well, then I have to have a, a, a terpene test to back that up. Yeah, certainly. So I was really surprised when when your publicist had emailed me and she said that you really are pushing to have the heavy metals testing. And I thought heavy metals testing was a requirement. So can you explain a little bit deeper into like what is going on with the heavy metals testing and how it could be improved? 
Oh yeah, yeah. So heavy heavy metals testing is a requirement, and I, I think maybe maybe what your conversation was about is we're we're doing a project right now where um we were testing. So we had we had a um a couple customers this summer just a, a cluster of failures, um in pre rolls where we traced it back. Actually, in this instance, we traced it back to uh um to uh, chlorpyrifos contamination in the rolling papers. And so that that's one of the pesticides that's on the on the state panel. And in and there was enough of the pesticide in the rolling papers that even though the cannabis that was used to make the pre-rolls was clean and had been previously tested by by the first customer who we who we kind of traced this this problem back to, um, that there was enough of this pesticide in the rolling papers that actually contaminated the whole oh, no. pre-roll over the state limit. So so um they were, you know, at risk of failing, failing their batches and and we and and then we also had a couple other customers right around the same time that had a similar problem, and we traced it back to the rolling papers, and it was pro- likely a, a a a batch that they had all you know purchased the rolling papers from the same manufacturer and probably the same lot um, that had the same contamination and all that. So what we we've done is is, is a broader study. Um, we went and kind of purchased every every set of rolling papers or, or blunt wraps or, or cones we could get our hands on, and we were testing them for pesticides and heavy metals. And what we found is that about five percent of the rolling papers we tested, tested actually over the state limit for one pesticide or another. Um, and, and, and we had a few different pesticides that we were, we were finding in rolling papers. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's kind of a, a multiple ways where, where pesticides could find their way into rolling papers, depending on what the papers are made of, um, how they're stored. You know, a lot of these pesticides are even used to kind of fumigate warehouses and things like that. So, mm. um, you know, I'm not going to speculate too much where they came from, but that's, certainly was an issue we identified with rolling papers. And in some instances, the contamination is so great, like what we saw here, where you could actually fail products that you make with those rolling papers. And then um, beyond that, though, what we found is, is that heavy metals is probably are, are probably a bigger issue with rolling papers. So, um, you know, we, we, we kind of did a survey of, of, of those samples and, and found that, you know, even more um, of them, right around 10% were contaminated with metals to the point where they were over the action limits for the state of California for inhalable cannabis products. And about half of those were so grossly contaminated that they would be in danger of contaminating any any type of pre-roll you made with those to the point where they would fail the California test. Wow. And one of my friends and, and colleagues, I affectionately refer to him as the rain man of health. And anytime something's going on, he's, you know, got the Eastern medicine, Western medicine background, all the, you know, working in the supplement world, all this stuff. And he's like, anything that's going on in your body to get to the root of it, the first thing he would recommend people is to do a heavy metals test on our hair because we are just absorbing heavy metals everywhere. You know, Mm -hmm. it's in air, it's in different products that we use, you know, it's all over the place. And so I find it curious that there isn't some sort of, I don't know, more discussion about it. He's the first person that was ever talking to me about it. When I go to a doctor or, you know, having scalp issues and go to a dermatologist, you know, they're just giving you medicine to put on it. You know, it's a Band-Aid. And I think a lot of the underlying issues that a lot of us have in our health is from heavy metals. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, metals are a tough one because, you know, it, pesticides are an artificial chemical that's, that's, that's manufactured that you can avoid. I mean, we live in a contaminated world and we use so many pesticides in, in, in our modern kind of agricultural practices that, that it's tough to avoid them. But with metals, metals are everywhere. They're in our environment. 
actually in this study the uh, you know we tested well over 100 samples and and over 90% of them came back positive for um one metal or another and most of them came back for several of the there's four metals we test for in in California lead cadmium arsenic and mercury and most of them came back for several metals but over 90% had had detectable levels of at least lead or some other some other metal and that's because they're natural products. They're made from hemp. They're made from rice. Um, they're made from, you know, uh, uh, cellulose. And, and so um, these are all, you know, plant-based materials that in plants tend to uptake metals from their environment. And so um, you can't completely avoid them. And the kind of routes you can be exposed to them are, are, are so kind of varied that it, that it's it's hard to know necessarily if you've been consuming, you know, a, a lot of heavy metals accidentally. And so um, yeah, it, 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 it's good we're doing the testing, I think. And, and what we've shown is, is in, by and large, we, we rarely fail samples for, for metal contamination. Um, so it's not a huge burden on the industry, but then you will find customers that are consistently failing for one metal or another from batch to batch to batch. And you know, okay, well, they have some sort of contamination in their facility that they need to identify and fix. And so usually when we do have a positive detection, it, it's almost... Um, in the long run, a benefit for the customer. You know, in the short term, if they if they have a batch that that they have to remediate or or even lose, um, yeah, that certainly is, is no fun. But but you know, it helps them identify an issue. For instance, when we first started doing when you know the the state of California had different uh, sections of, of of regulations. So the heavy metals test was the last kind of tranche of of, of testing that was required in, in cannabis products, and so not a lot of labs had been doing any heavy metal testing up until then. And when um, January 1st, 2018 came around and now we have to do metal, metals testing, um, we had a ton of failures in, in the vape cartridge market and the vape cartridges be for, for lead because the vape cartridge manufacturers were just all using lead in the wicks. And no one really knew because no one was doing that testing. It's and so all of this manufacturing is done in China. It's not done here. And so it's a whole that's a whole other Yep. And so, so once we, you know, discovered, Hey, all of these things have lead in them. Well, then all of the manufacturers went back to their cartridge manufacturers and said, what the heck it was, it happened to be over Chinese new year. So it, it took a while to respool all these factories. So there was like a two or three month period, right. When we started doing the heavy metals testing, where it was hard to, hard to find a clean cartridge. Um, but after, as soon as, as soon as kind of that, you know, it be, we became aware of it real quickly, all these manufacturers were able to switch over their manufacturing and start producing cartridges that weren't contaminated with lead. You know, it's just one of those things that if someone's bothering to look, it's really easy to fix a lot of these kind of contamination issues. Um, but if no one's looking, then you're just never going to identify them. I think a lot of times people are looking, they just don't want to say anything about it. So it takes that brave person to say like, hey, we've got like an industry wide issue that we need to take care of. And I mean, frankly, I don't really do much with the vape pens anymore. I'm just like, eh, I'm going to let them just work all these kinks out, you know, hopefully come up with something that's a little bit more earth friendly in the vaping space. But you know, the issues that I have seen and had myself are, well, I sent a sample to multiple labs and I got, you know, three, five different results. It can all be so different. And so I know that that's part of the reason why we need some sort of standardization of all these testing. So can you explain to the listeners how the lack of federal support affects this quality and safety and and research and consumer protection yeah I mean there, and, and there's a lot of factors at, at play here the first is 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 the labs that have been here for a while like ours um, started doing this when there were no regulations no requirements for any type of accreditation or anything I could I could just open up a business say I'm a lab and um, 
start, you know, accepting samples. And there was a wide range kind of, of rigor, I guess, that went, went into some of those labs. Uh, real early, we wanted to be very science focused. And I think, you know, our sort of business model was based on having a really good reputation that people trusted our results. Because if, if you're not required to test, our thought was, why go to a lab that's not going to do a good job? They're just giving you numbers. Some people wanted to go to a lab that would give them a high THC number so they could go use that to market their products and they didn't care. Um, it was worth it. So so there was that kind of disparity where, where some of the labs, um, and, and I'm, I'm using labs loosely right there, um, you know, just kind of gave people really high results and that was their business model. So you had kind of a, a wide range of, of, I guess, competencies in, in your labs to start with. Then we flip a switch and now we're, we're regulated. We're supposed to be getting accredited, which that means an outside body comes and audits your methods, audits your quality system, and make sure that at least you're, you're maintaining some sort of basic levels of competency. And, and still that, that certification is called ISO accreditation. And ISO is kind of the international body that sets standards for whether it's labs or manufacturers or you know a multitude of things. And so, so now the state is requiring, you know, all labs that to get ISO accredited. But again, there was kind of a, a grace period to do that. And the the state itself, um, the Bureau of Cannabis Control, definitely is is very very detailed in their requirements for method validation. Where I I have a method to test for cannabinoids. Um, now there's there's a whole science into proving that the numbers I'm getting from my from my my test are actually accurate. And so the state is very prescriptive now on, on how we do that part. But again, there was a grandfather you know, or a period where we, it was phased in. So, so not every lab, the labs are just now starting to actually turn over that validation data. Um, and so not all labs have done that yet. And, and certainly they, all that validation data hasn't really been parsed yet. So but it's kind of a long story to say that this slow process to sort of bring the laboratories up to the, the basic minimum standards. I think most of your labs out there now that are, you know, that are doing enough testing to be busy are doing a pretty good job. There's certainly some labs out there that I'm not going to name which ones, but there's certainly some labs out there that are still giving people those high THC results just to get market share. You know, that works for a while until you get to a certain place where it's like, well, I, I mean... I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you ask an employee to to cheat for you, but but either way, so so that that still goes on, but I think a lot less. And I think as over time, you'll see that the the complaint that I took my my sample to five different labs and five got five different results will get better. Beyond that, though, you still do have a lot of these products that are are highly variable. So besides the labs kind of needing to get up to a, a certain level of of competency, um, you also have producers who don't necessarily have a good handle on their production processes yet. Um, haven't, you know, produced, produced some of these products on, on, on a scale that, you know, say, say some of these larger nutraceutical companies have done. And you've got a natural product that has a lot of natural variability built into it. And so a lot of times too, that it's a problem with the, the products aren't necessarily as, as homogenous as people hope they are. So if I have a flower and, you know, I test 16% THC, and then I take that cut and maybe even do a couple more rounds and then bring it to another lab and I get a 19% THC or an 18% THC. I'll have people come back to me and say, what the heck? You know, I, this is the same cut I grew in. And last year I had it tested and, and it was two points higher. And it's like, well, I mean, come on, that 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 actually is pretty good. <laughs> you know, that Well, you- <laughs> yeah. And within a year, like you're the cannabinoids are going to change and all kinds of stuff's going to happen to that plant. Yeah. But Plain Jane is the company I was uh, recently interviewing. And, you know, they're trying to push for the 1% THC versus 0.3% THC with these hemp CBD plants because 
you know, you can get it tested. And then once you trim the sugar leaves off and stuff, then that's where a lot of that CBD numbers are. And so then that in, in and of itself would push those THC numbers up. So yeah, I mean, it can come down to those little nuanced things. Oh, and then when you get with hemp, where you have kind of the strict tolerance on, on THC, where now all of a sudden it's not hemp. And I have, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, invested in this crop that, you know, 0.3 or 0.4 means either I have to destroy it or bring it to market. And so that makes it much higher stakes. And, and I think, you know, this, this whole kind of distinction um, between hemp and cannabis, which hemp is cannabis, they're the exact same plant, um, is problematic for a lot of reasons. And, and, and this is just one of them. And, and you know, I, on one hand, I'm very happy that hemp is, is, is kind of pushing through the kind of the federal legalization because hemp might be what kind of opens the door for cannabis. But at the same time, I feel like I'm really worried that cannabis and the cannabis industry will get undercut by kind of a lack of regulations in the hemp industry. So, you know, if I, right now, if I'm producing CBD products from hemp, I have no taxes, I have no quality control regulations, I have no requirements to do anything. I can just basically, I don't even have to really put CBD into it. I can just say it's there. There's no truth in labeling. There's there's no one looking at, at these hemp products. And so it's kind of the wild west, like maybe the cannabis was seven or eight years ago. And, but then if I'm going to make a CBD product, the exact same product with the exact same constituents, but I'm going to make it from high CBD cannabis, which is essentially hemp. Now, all of a sudden I have to do testing, I have to pay taxes. And so I worry that, you know, some of these hemp products might be able to undercut the quality or the cannabis products on quality. And I, yeah. and I don't think that's fair. And, and really, you know, the testing we do, if it's regulated correctly and it's set up correctly, it's not overly burdensome on the producers. You know, mm -hmm. there, there, there's ways to mitigate the cost of testing, um, you know, for, for even small producers. Well, and, you know, you saying it, it, it's the Wild West in the CBD world. The FDA randomly tested 200 tinctures, oils, capsules, edibles, drinkables, and pet products containing CBD, and nearly half were found to contain THC. And of the 20 food and beverage products, five contained less than 80% of the amount indicated and six contained more than 120% of the amount indicated. And so, yeah, it's been all over the board. There's been different associations that are just doing the shelf test because, like you said, there are no regulations to stop it from getting on the shelf. Yeah. And so now, you know, in the federal landscape, there have been submissions to start figuring out what that regulation is going to look like. And I I hope that we have a smart group of people that are keeping cannabis in the back of their mind as they're setting all of this up so that it is creating a blueprint that we can just easily walk into and have federal legalization across the board. Yeah. And I think, you know, we also too often miss the point that, you know, there, there's more to cannabis than than THC and CBD as well. So you also have a bunch of other cannabinoids and, and which ones fall under the, the hemp umbrella, which ones fall under the cannabis umbrella. You can also really easily, and and, and, it's, and I, I think there's a High Times article that just came out about it, and, and we've been certainly seeing it with, with a lot of our customers where um, it's really easy too to take CBD and treat it with with kind of a low pH solution or, or acidic solution. And, and convert it over to Delta-8 THC, which is chemically almost identical to Delta-9 THC. Um, and, and it's psychoactive, just like A lot like of THC. people like Delta-8 better because it's that, you know, milder, breezier high. Yep, yep. And so it's really easy to take a hemp product or a CBD-based product and and convert that CBD into Delta-8 THC. Shut the front door. Yeah, so now, so now are we, you know, now will hemp also even kind of undercut the, the cannabis market in wow. that way too. So, so I mean, there, there's, a, there's a ton of things at play and all of them become more problematic when you try and differentiate, you know, hemp from cannabis. 
that's so fascinating to me. Is there anyone right now doing that? Is it just we're playing in the lab figuring this out or is someone trying to make a product out of this? Um, well, you know, no, there's definitely people doing this with products and, and people doing it in hemp only states. Mm-hmm. I certainly, you know, I've, I've, I've talked with people who, who, who think that they could, you know, kind of go toe to toe with the FDA on this one and that it's sort of a loophole and that, you know, once once I've established that it, it came from hemp, I can kind of do what I want with it. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, so so but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's certainly something that's kind of on the horizon and kind of adds another wrinkle to the whole equation. Yeah. So many wrinkles. So you are on the medical cannabis expert panel for U.S. Pharmacopeia, and the panel unanimously agreed that establishing cannabis chemotype classifications should be the basis for quality assurance testing. Will you explain that for us in layman's terms? Yeah. So I'm sure most people who are familiar with cannabis have heard of the term strain. And a, and a strain is sort of a, a variety or a cultivar of, of cannabis that has certain certain traits. And, and, and usually when we talked about strains, we talked about them either genetically on, on kind of the lineage of, of where the, the plants that we use to make that strain had come from, as well as kind of the qualitative um, parts of, 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 of that strain, how it tastes, the effect it gives you, whether it's an indica or sativa, I'm using air quotes there. But what a chemotype is, is a chemotype is, is, is a variety, but defined by its chemical constituents. So when I'm talking about chemotype, I might be describing a strain, but but when I'm talking about chemotype, I'm talking about its cannabinoid content, which cannabinoids are there and which concentrations, and, and more importantly, maybe which ratios, as well as the terpenes and kind of any other relevant um, chemicals that kind of define what makes this strain or this chemotype unique from the other. And so, you know, with that statement, I, I think um, what they're saying is, is that the chemotype, which, you know, would be type one or type two, high THC or high CBD or type three, some other cannabinoid in, in, in abundant amounts. Um, or you can even discuss the, the terpene category it falls into as the chemotype. And that's kind of how we should discuss cannabis going forward. Because I think since since cannabis can can have so many different potential active ingredients, I think, you know, kind of any discussion of, of, of it should start with what are the active ingredients in this you know, cannabis I'm holding. Now, you can even, you can have two high THC strains right next to each other. But if one is myrcene dominant and one is terpinaline dominant, you're going to have very different well, flavors, but you're going to have very different effects as yeah, well. The, the myrcene dominant strain, um, which are you know basically your traditional indica strains, are going to make you sleepy because myrcene is a relatively strong natural sedative. So myrcene dominant strains are the ones that are going to make you really sleepy. And it's, and, and it's the THC in combination with the myrcene most likely that is causing that effect, whereas terpinaline doesn't have that sedative effect. And many people say it's stimulating, and there's certainly a lot of data out there on terpinaline and other plants and in, 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 as an essential oil that would suggest that as well. And so um, that's your traditional sativa, you know, in sort of, um, you know, you can really easily go through a go through a menu at a dispensary and, and, and look at how they group things into indica sativa. And I can tell you what likely what, what the chirpings are there because the chirpings are pretty much what's given it that indica sativa effect. Mm-hmm. So Confident Cannabis is a website that I love perusing because you can you can see the chemical makeup, the the variants of each of these strains. And around it, it will show you what are other strains that are very characteristically similar in case you want something and it's not available. And so you could see this. So I'm assuming like that's what we're talking about. That sort of a look at each of these strains is like, what is the chemovar? Like it has this 3D, 4D kind of appearance versus just on a piece of paper having indica sativa, 19% THC, 4% CBD, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And and so you can 
you know, we, we test for 30 some, I don't even know the exact number right now, um, terpenes. And so and terpenes are the chemicals that make up the essential oil of kind of all plants. And they're very aromatic in most, most instances. And so um, they're going to, you know, affect the flavor. And, and like I said, also the, the effect, because many of them are sort of bioactive on their own. But what you can do out of the 30 some terpenes we test for, 99.9% of the samples that come through the lab, and we've done hundreds of thousands of tests at this point. And so, you know, pretty darn good data set. And 99.9% of the samples that come through the lab are fall into kind of one of four categories, either myrcene dominant, either some combination of myrcene, lemonine, and beta-caryophylline. And lemonine is sort of that citrusy smell from lemons. And, and beta-caryophylline is, is, is really prevalent in clove cigarettes. So if you've ever smelt that kind of spicy smell from clove cigarettes, that's beta-caryophylline. So the other class is sort of co-dominant in those three terpenes. And usually there's one of one or the other is, is going to be there in a little bit more of an amount, but they're, they're all there in sort of semi-dominant amounts. And you rarely find like a, a lemonine dominant strain with very little mercy and a bit of caryophylline. They almost always come along together. And then there's pinene dominant strains. And so, um, you know, those are like blue dream. And it's actually one of the rarer, rarer kind of categories. And a lot of people who kind of get down on blue dream as being a kind of a commercial strain is actually a very, it's in, it sits in a very rare terpene class. It's, it's, it's very common itself, but then I, you'd have a hard time recognizing any of the other strains that that are pining dominant that are out there. And then terpinaline dominant, like your jacks, your train wrecks, things like that. And like I said, 99.9% of, of what we see falls into those. Doesn't mean it's the only thing that's possible. We have, um, you know, we have a Borneal dominant strain. One strain that one person has is he's related to someone who's a flight attendant who brought it back from Russia and, and kind of started breeding with it. And, and it's a Borneal dominant strain. It's the only one I've ever seen. And he consistently brings it through the lab. But, you know, that's, What's that's the name of it. Do you know? Oh, you I don't remember? know off the top of my head. Okay. I don't know off the top I'm of my like, head. I'm like, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> but then beyond that, then then each of those kind of dominant categories, and then you can you can take the indica sativa kind of spectrum and put it right on there. Your your mercine dominant strains are the ones that are always labeled indica. Your pinene and your terpinaline dominant strains are the ones that are are, are labeled sativa. And then sort of that co-dominant class where it's beta-caryophylline, lemonine, and myrcene, those are usually labeled as your hybrids. Hybrids. And yeah, and we just really need to get away from that altogether. Because, you know, the indica and sativa, those are styles of the plant. It has really nothing to do with our smoking experience, but it seemed like such an easy way to classify things back in the day. And now it's like we do need some sort of new menu, if you will. Yeah. And it, and it was describing something that people were really experiencing. You know, some of them, some some cannabis cultivars certainly make me sleepy and some don't as much. And maybe that the sleepy ones, I prefer the taste of those better, but I like the high from the, the ones that don't or whatever. So, but yeah, now we know kind of what's the major cause of kind of those those things we were trying to describe before is. So we, we have a more nuanced, I think, way of, 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 of describing it now. And so might as well use that. The, the kind of the corollary to wine is very similar too. You kind of, you have your reds, your whites, but you also have within those, then you have kind of different subgroups that kind of now begin to describe mercine dominant strains, include, you know, some of the fuel strains all the way to like the, the sweet fruity strains. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you start getting into kind of some of these other terpenes like osamine that sort of potentiate those those major groups and kind of divide the, the subgroups into each other. So what we can do with our analysis is I can I can take a terpene test and I can I can kind of tell you which group of strains that 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 sample falls within. You know, that that's most likely a purple, you know, and, and kind of maybe a grape ear purple. And so, so that's, that's where kind of some of the test results become really powerful is where you can, you can use quantitative data 
to sort of categorize strains, like you were saying, and and, and sort of predict the effects that they're going to have. I love that because, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you call someone and you're like, hey, what kind of wine did you want me to bring over? A Zinfandel, you want something big and bold. Do you want a Pinot, some, you know, softer red? Like we can say this to each other, know exactly what we need to get and get it. You can't do that with cannabis right now. Yeah. And, like, and in a post-COVID world, I mean, even me, uh, last night I was going to my dispensary and you have to order online first now because you can't go in the dispensary that I go to. So I was looking online and it just, they had a whole whole bunch of kind of random names. You know, I, they didn't have kind of the the, the normal the normal names. And in cannabis, things get renamed so often. It's really hard. You know, you see see something new and you're like, well, I'd like to try that, but I have no kind of, no context on, on, on what I'm going to get with that. And and now I can't, you know, kind of smell it or, or ask a bud tender to, you know, what they think. But, but with terpenes, I can do that. I can say, well, I like type ones that are pinene dominant. And, you know, I, I really like Blue Dream, but they're out of Blue Dream, but oh, they have this other pinene dominant strain here. Let's try that. I know I'm going to like that, you know, and so exactly what you're saying. Um, but I think even more so these days where, where we maybe can't touch and hold the cannabis before we purchase it or smell it at least. Yeah. Cause you know, terpene experts, it's like the nose knows. And it's like, but why can't you use my nose right now? So yeah. now what do I do? Exactly. Exactly. Well, so tell me what is maybe something that I didn't ask you that's exciting in your research right now or something that you think the listeners need to know? Um, a lot of things. I think one thing, and we, we sort of touched on it with, with the CBD and, and, and kind of, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but one, one thing we've just done recently that, that you know, is, is worth, I think, talking about is um, in conjunction with, with uh, um, the UCBA um, in, in LA, we, we did a test of some of the CBD products that are on the market and sold at, at smoke shops. It's also kind of one of the new things in LA is to, is to set up kind of these trap CBD shops. It, it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge CBD shops. And so we did a, a test of those products and, and yeah, found a lot of products down in LA that are being marketed as hemp are actually, you know, completely high THC, you know, which, which you know, if, if I'm not expecting that and I'm, I'm trying to purchase a CBD product, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to probably have a bad day if I, yeah. if I go pick up a cartridge that's <laughs> 70% C THC. Um, and then what we found, obviously, and probably as could be expected, is a lot of those products were, were just grossly, grossly contaminated. And so, um, and, and gross, I mean, really contaminated, not, oh, that's gross, but I guess that is, that, that applies <laughs> that as well. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so that's one thing we've done a lot, the, the rolling paper study we, we've done recently. And so what we've been focused on a lot is, is sort of just trying to get data out there into people's hands. I think we've got a lot, a lot of moving parts right now. Um, it's been really exciting, you know, to, to sort of over the last 11 years, working in the lab industry, sort of everyone comes through the lab and, and it's kind of one of the bigger labs out there. We've got to work with kind of really, you know, the innovators in, in, in space and, and have a really cool vantage point to just see this this industry kind of evolve. And, and we've gotten to, you know, I think play a part in, in some of the regulations and, and, and things like that. Based on that experience, I, I think cannabis is in, is in a really interesting place right now. And, and um, you know, it can go a lot of a lot of ways with the CBD um, kind of issue, um, sort of driving things. You also have, well, you know, kind of what's the legal status of, of cannabis itself going to be over the coming years? How is the industry going to play out? Is there going to still be a place for the small producers? Is it going to kind of just go the way of, of kind of everything else? And it's just going to be big businesses going to come in and take over. Um, so I think, you know, right now is a really interesting interesting time for the cannabis industry, probably the most I've seen since in California. And, and we also have a lab up in Oregon and, and, and kind of both of those states regulated one after the other. And so that was that was certainly a big change for how we did business. But I think equally as as important is, is sort of what happens with cannabis over the next year or two years. Um, and, and, and so I think for us, our, our mission is just work with 
with groups as much as we can in the USP. We work with the AOAC, which is the, the body that sets testing standards, um, like we talked about earlier. Early on, we, we actually, when we, when we didn't make a lot of money and we, we were still not, you know, making a hand over a fist or anything, but we did make a lot of money. We, we donated a, a fair amount of money to the AOAC to get them to start a cannabis working group because we recognized how important it would be to have those kind of standards. And, and, and sort of, if we want our industry to be taken seriously, it's important that our competitors do a good job as well. And, you know, if, right. we, if we're the only lab that is doing things like we're supposed to be doing, that doesn't really help us because then, like you said, the, the labs that are doing a crappy job kind of bring it all down and, and kind of... Um, it reduced the perceived importance of, of quality control testing. And so so our mission has been to sort of as over these next few years is, is to try and just get as much data as we can in, into into the right people's hands to help, you know, kind of lend our insight where we can. Um, because I, I feel really strongly that, um, you know, cannabis can be a model for, for how to regulate a product, how to make it safer, how to reduce the contamination in, in those products. I mean, cannabis is tested more than your food is and, and, and even more than nutraceutical products are right now. And so, in, 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 at least in California and in a lot of these other states, and I think, um, you know, it can be a really good example how we can do that without breaking the backs of, of, of our customers. And so, um, you know, I think, there, like I said earlier, there's ways to mitigate the cost and the burden of quality control on cannabis. But, but really, for the regulated market right now, Quality is what differentiates legal cannabis from from sort of the un, unlicensed or, or um, unregulated cannabis market. I can go to my friend who grows it in his backyard and, and get it a lot cheaper than I can at the dispensary. I don't have to pay taxes. Um, you know, I can get a deal. But what differentiates the cannabis I go buy from the dispensary is that you know I know that it doesn't have pesticides on it. I know it's been tested and it's clean, and I have some sort of quality control that goes into it. So that's also important. I think is 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 to to sort of continue to drive drive that differentiation that the legal market is the way to go for the consumer too. Mm-hmm. And it's because of, you know, kind of what we're doing with is quality control. Yeah. So you have spaces in California and Oregon, you have labs there. Yeah. And so for these companies who are, you know, killing it in California and they're ready to make the step into being a multi-state operator, I just feel like having these sort of testing requirements and some sort of framework for everyone, it makes that jump a lot easier. Right now, are you working with multi-state operators and how how is that for them? Yeah, exactly. And, and they want us to be in every state they are in because it just makes their life easier. Um, for us, you know, I'm glad we're just in two states right now. We we, we did it very slowly and we and, and focused and, and we've been sort of con- concentrating on the West Coast because we think kind of post-federal legalization that most of the industry will will be based on the West Coast and, and production will happen here just because this is kind of a we have we have better climate and we have kind of the infrastructure here already. So so that's been our focus. And I think a lot of our competitors kind of really quickly said, well, I need to be in every state, too. And that's just really tough to do, you know. And so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's a good idea if you can walk and chew gum. But, um, you know, we, for, for us as a small company, you know, we, we've been very focused. And in general, um, our focus has been kind of on California because it is such a big market is, is, is to really do a good job here before we try and, you know, plant a flag everywhere. Yeah, I guess so that would probably be my advice is, is be careful. It's, it's really easy to overextend yourself and it's, it's really easy to kind of chase shiny things. Um, as, you know, in the cannabis industry, everyone is so excited. It's a new industry and, you know, companies were, were receiving these kind of huge valuations overnight and, you know, and it's easy to kind of believe the hype. And really at the end of the day, you still have to operate a profitable business and you have to do a good job at, at your core business. And, and so that's kind of, um, you know, that's what we've tried to focus on. Maybe it, it slowed our growth, but we're still here. And, and a lot of people well, who, who started 10 or 11 years ago aren't. So. Yeah, totally. Well, and in my mind, as, as you're talking, I'm like, well, if 
I were a multi-state operator and I was really confident with SC Labs, I would just make sure that my lab on the East Coast, like you have to have a conference call before we begin with SC Labs and like, this is what we're doing. This is our standards and kind of compare and contrast those methods and make sure that, you know, you are setting yourself up for success from that foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'm glad California wasn't one of the first states to, to regulate because I think we've gotten it more or less the most right <laughs> so far of the, the major cannabis states. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because the, this patchwork of regulations, every state being its own kind of fiefdom and, and having its own regulations is really confusing and, and really difficult, I'm sure, for multi-state operators. And it, it's certainly been something that's made our kind of expansion difficult and why we've been so careful not to, to kind of expand too quickly. Um, but at the same time, all of these different states doing it differently, you know, has, has, has given us the opportunity to see a bunch of different models and, and kind of compare and contrast what's worked and what hasn't worked in different places. And so, um, yeah, it's been good and bad, I think. Now, switching gears for a minute, I want to talk about CBG for a second, because in the hemp world, CBG is definitely having its come up. But of course, I tell people all the time, it's the parent cannabinoid. Like it was the first one. It may just now be getting popular, but you know, it all begins with CBG. So I would love to know from your chemist mind, tell us a little bit about that cannabinoid and what, you know, you're, how you're seeing people play with it and all that good stuff. Yeah. And well, my first, my first kind of intro to, to CBG was, it was, I, I kept getting this weird ghost peak in, in when, whenever we'd test uh, and a peak by peak is a detection, I guess, of a cannabinoid that I didn't know what it was initially when we weren't testing for CBG. So certain strains like uh, green crack, dream queen, same thing, but uh, has, has. What a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it has, has, a, um, has, a, has a, a, a significant amount of CBG, whereas most of your, your, your THC dominant cultivars are going to have, you know, trace amounts of CBG left. And yeah, as soon as it's created, it, it's quickly synthesized into THC. So like you said, CBG is the parent compound in the plant synthetic pathway for THC, CBD, and CBC. So CBG comes first and then enzymes act upon the CBG molecule and turn it into one of those three, three molecules. For whatever reason, in, in some strains, um, most likely there, there's, there's a deficiency in the enzyme that does that conversion to an extent where not all of the CBG converts into to one of those things. And in, in green crack is one of those strains that typically does that. And so if you think you get kind of an interesting high off of green crack, that's, that's likely why. And so saw it there. Um, now it's, you know, very common people are, are breeding hemp to, to produce predominantly CBG or, or large amounts of CBG. And all of these cannabinoids have similar chemical structures. So they all are bioactive in one way or another. And um, as you know, CBD and CB or THC have very different effects because where they are different, potentiates those effects. So yeah, CBG has a lot of a lot of really interesting potential. Obviously, there isn't as much research into it as there is in THC or CBD, just because it wasn't as commonly known or, or studied. But I think there's a lot of really interesting things to come from what breeders are starting to do with these minor cannabinoids. CBG is just kind of the first one that was the easiest one to kind of breed plants that produce significant amounts of it. Um, but now we're seeing you know a lot of plants that produce CBC, which has has you know potential for some interesting um, applications. THCV and CBDV are very common. We have producers making CBL products, which is this kind of really random cannabinoid. I was fixing to say, out of all of them, you just said CBL. I've never heard of this one. Yeah, CBL is kind of like the degradation product, kind of like CBN is. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with it personally, but I... I and is it the degradation of CBD or CBC? Yeah, okay. CBD. Okay. Uh, CBD, I believe. CBD. Okay. 
Yeah, you got me in the spot, but I believe, yeah, CBD okay. or maybe CBDV. It's one of those two. Okay. It was probably four years ago. I was in Colorado and needed to get some more uh, muscle rub. And I found one that had the cannabichromine in it. It had the combination of THC, some CBD, and CBC. And it just felt like a miracle on my skin. I was just like, I've never felt that quick of the pain relief. And so I just thought, okay, well, this CBC, I've never seen it before, but this must be the the magic hitter. Well, and, and you know, this, I came into this a big fan of cannabis to start with. I, I've, since I was 16 years old and I took my first hit off a bong and got high for the first time. I was like, this is really cool. Everything they've said about it. Because back then, I mean, it was still a bad drug that was going to oh, yeah. ruin your life. You're a child of the world on drugs like I was. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I realized, you know, and that kind of made me, it made me kind of led me down the, the path to science to, to realize that, hey, no, you got to get, you got to collect the data. The data should speak, not what people's preconceived, you know, ideas of something are. But either way, so I, I've always been a fan of cannabis and, you know, making it my job, uh, you know, it kind of wears you out on it sometimes. But I still get excited about the fact that here you have this plant that produces all of these bioactive compounds. It's almost completely non-toxic. You know, you can't OD on it, but you can OD on aspirin. You can OD on ibuprofen. You can OD on just about anything. But, you know, it, it, you I, I, I don't want to say you can't. But, but I'll say it. Yeah. I don't mind. Yeah. But I mean, there's there's no documented, um, you know, deaths that are that, you know, from from cannabis overdoses or anything like that. But either way, you have this plant that produces all of these compounds that are bioactive um, and, and do different things. They're not just all compounds that kind of do the same thing in your body. You have THC and CBD and, and the one that activates your CB1 and CB2 receptors and another one that blocks the CBD1 and CB2 receptors. And you have all of these, you know, chemicals in the same plant that can kind of you can you can kind of modulate this endocannabinoid system you have in your body. And what we're finding is as we start kind of doing the research into THC, um, we've realized that, wait a minute, there's this whole system in your body. We've only discovered the endocannabinoid system in the 90s because we were looking to figure out why THC has the psychoactive effect on you. And we thought it was something to do, or I say we, the scientific community thought it was something to do with THC altering the membrane permeability of, of your cells. And then they found, oh, wait a minute, no, we have we have cannabinoid receptors in our body. Oh, wait, we have more cannabinoid receptors in the rest of, you know, they found the ones in the brain first, and then they found the ones in the peripheral system first. And there's likely three or four other completely different sets of cannabinoid receptors throughout your body. And what, what they're finding is that, that the endocannabinoid system might be one of the most complex and widespread, you know, systems in your body. And, and, and so that and then, affects so much yep, of your life. Yep. And then you have this plant that can produce dozens of different chemicals that all kind of do slightly different things with that system. And then you add the chirpings on, on top of it. And, and it's just it's just really interesting. And, you know, for for those of us who kind of think, well, you know, maybe we need to start searching for more natural kind of alternatives to some of the pharmaceuticals we're taking. You know, cannabis is is, is right there and, it, and it's not hippie stuff anymore. You know, it's it's it's, you know, my my very conservative grandma and, and aunts and uncles are are hitting me up on the regular and have been for several years now about, you know, hey, which CBD product should I be taking? You know, whereas, you know, I, I was kind of embarrassed to talk about what I was doing with those people, you know, 10 years ago, all of a sudden, really quickly, things have started to change. And, and so it's just been really cool. There's, there's just so many angles that cannabis takes, whether it's, you know, the scientific angle, whether it's, you know, the medical angle, whether it's the activism angle, you know, certainly over the last 11 years, we've, we've been, you know, accidental, um, you know, activists for sure. You know, I'm not so accidental in, in some certain circumstances, but being in the industry, you can't help but, but being an activist as well. And so there's just so many different avenues that this plant has led me down that it's, it's been a real cool journey for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you're curious about 
any of it, you can just go down the rabbit hole on that particular piece of it. I mean, there's so much to learn. There's so much to know. And I think that can be part of the most intimidating part of getting into the culture or, you know, even just participating as a consumer is that it is so nuanced. It's like you jump into the pool and you're in the ocean. Yeah. And, and we have, and I didn't even bring up all, all the different ways you can ingest it. You know, you can eat oh, it, yeah. you can smoke it, you can, you know, put it topically. There's, there's, and, and there's a few more out there. So, you know, it's just, it, yeah, it, it's just really exciting. Well, I love getting nerdy with you on this. Is there anything else, a shameless plug? Um, well, I mean, SC Labs is, is the company I work for. Uh, I'll plug that. Um, the the USP working group that we were talking about uh, put out a, a article in the Journal of Natural Products, and they made it free so that way anyone can go download it. A lot of times you have to pay to, to, to get those scientific journal articles. Um, but it's basically the cannabis monograph. So we sat down, and the U.S. Pharmacopeia has a pharmacopeia, and any any pharmaceutical drug or any natural product that is is going to be labeled as a nutraceutical has a monograph in, in there and it sets kind of the quality and purity standards for that substance. And so we did that for cannabis. Now, politics being what they are, we can't put that in the pharmacopoeia yet, or I should say put it back in the pharmacopoeia because cannabis used to be in the pharmacopoeia before before the, the prohibition began, so before the 1920s. And so at some point, this will be the monograph that goes back in the pharmacopoeia. But for now, we just published it in the Journal of Natural Products, awaiting you know kind of politics to be friendlier. But um, with the new hemp rules that the FDA is issuing, certainly we're gonna be working or are working on a, on a hemp and CBD monograph and so, or monographs. And so hopefully those will end up in the pharmacopoeia, if not cannabis. Nice. Well, I will make sure and include a link to that in the show notes. And I want to read that as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, but this has been really fun. There's only so much that me as a, I call myself like the ultimate consumer. I share my advice and experiences and wisdom, you know, as a cannabis lifestyle guide. But sometimes there's just things where I'm like, I need somebody else to explain this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if that's been my secret sauce personally over the, over the years, it's that I, I really love cannabis and I'm I am a consumer as well. And and so many kind of of my my colleagues in 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 kind of the cannabis scientific community really don't. You know, I, I'm astonished how many people I interact with that are decision makers at big cannabis companies who don't touch the stuff, who are kind of still look down on it as as themselves as a consumer. But like, well, I see money here, you know, great money to be made, but I'm not a I'm not a consumer. And it just, I think, you know, it is very hard to kind of put your finger on the pulse of, of, of the industry if you don't enjoy the product. I mean, I, I don't think I could make a good wine if I wasn't, if I didn't enjoy wine, you know. I, I oh, I agree. And I did sales for a really long time in media. And it's like, if you don't believe in your product, you really are a shitty salesperson. You can tell if somebody, you know, has cannabis street cred or not at these conferences. So I'll just say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I miss that, you know. I I don't know if legalization is, is kind of ruined cannabis a little bit or not. I, I do I do miss the the good old days when you did sneak away and you had with, with the cool kids and, and oh yeah I, oh yeah I, I can't wait to go go with this family outing because I'm going to see someone such and such a cousin and we're going to sneak off and get high and you know and I do miss that part of it now now shit you can smoke right in front of the grandparents. Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> yes, at my family reunion in Texas uh, for years and years and years it would be you know, a couple of us would sneak off in the bushes to smoke. And then 
that smoking circle kept getting bigger and bigger to like half the family's gone. And it's like, can we just smoke on the porch now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's same, same here. <laughs> well, good deal. It's been fun talking to you, Josh. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but I love expanding my cannabis knowledge. And Josh certainly delivered some fresh new trivia today. If you also learned something new, I hope you'll share this podcast with a can of curious friend in your life. And if Casually Baked is growing your can of confidence, I'd love for you to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That helps others like you find this highly responsible content. I encourage you to submit your can of curious questions on the website at casuallybaked.com. Or if you're a social butterfly, DM me on social. I'm at Casually Baked on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm sending love to my California and Colorado friends uprooted by these wildfires. I hope to head up north in a couple of weeks to gather this season's Voices of Harvest stories. I'm always happy to give you a glimpse into the lives of our cannabis farmers. It's never been more important in this country to know where your food and flour comes from and to support the small business owners in your community. Together. If you're inspired to support my efforts in educating the gin pop on the truth of the modern cannabis culture, head on over to patreon.com backslash casually baked and become a podcast patron. It takes a village, my friend, to shift this tired old construct of the cannabis lifestyle. So help me help you. Puff, puff, pass it on. Casually Baked, the podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.